My name is Gabe Phillips, and it's a huge, huge privilege to be able to preach to you this morning. And uh, I'm a, a husband of one beautiful wife called Fiona Phillips, and we've got two amazing redhead kids, Olivia Grace and Benjamin Asher. But this morning, I want to tell you about a man named Lance Armstrong. You may have heard of him. A man who from the year 1999 to 2005 defied all the odds, all the athletic odds that he won seven consecutive Tour de France uh, races, what was seemingly impossible. And actually, the seventh one was the best of all as he uh, had the diagnosis of cancer, and he overcame those odds. It was a Roy of the Rovers type thing as he, as he took on the, the, the unimaginable and ascended the summit and won the seventh Tour de France in a row. Then after that, he wrote a book called It's Not About the Bike. And very quickly, we realized it was not about the bike. <laughs> as in 2012, the USDA came out and told us that the investigation concluded that Armstrong had used performance-enhancing drugs over the course of his career, and so much so that in 2013, he had to sit face-to-face -face with Oprah Winfrey, his inquisitor-in-chief, as she put aside the smiles and the, the, the washing machines underneath the chairs <laughs> to look him face-to-face -face and actually plunge the depths of his soul and... Uh, and get him to confess, get him into the corner where he admitted eventually, he said, I am a fraud. I'm not who I said I was. A whole career built on lies. Sponsors, charities, supporters all left him in droves. Scandal! Lance Armstrong has been caught out. There's another man named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and uh, he famously wrote the, the, the Sherlock Holmes narratives. But he was also known for being quite a prankster. And uh, this man in the 1800s sent out a telegram before a telegram was an app. It was a, just a mode of communication. And uh, thank you for that one laugh, Michael. Appreciate it. it was sympathy. Thank you. As he sent out these telegrams, he sent 10 telegrams to the 10 lords of London. And just on a whim, he wrote them a simple message. He said, all has been discovered. Flee at once. They, not knowing that he did not know anything about their story, the next morning, all 10 lords of London had packed their bags and disappeared without a trace. Because everyone knows that scandals follow us, so there are skeletons in our closets, and everyone loves a good scandal. You see, the world loves a scandal. It's a, we love to see what is going on in, in the world. We love to have somebody caught out, found out, eight chavang. Politicians, preachers, celebrities, influencers, sports stars, we are all awaiting at the clickbait for them to tell us about the scandal of fraud, the scandal of, of, of corruption, the scandal of perversity, the scandal of deceit. We're ready, and we'll, the, the top 10 scandals of the year, you'll be shocked at number six. Click the link Ooh, to find out more. We love a good scandal. But today I want to tell you from this pulpit, I get the privilege today to tell you about the scandal of all scandals. It's a scandal called grace. And we have been preaching this series, and we say it again and again and again till our fickle hearts get it. We do not preach a white Jesus. We are not preaching a black Jesus. We are not preaching a liberal Jesus or conservative Jesus. We are not preaching a Jesus who is distant, angry, and aloof. And neither are we preaching a Jesus who is weak, cheesy, and a bumper sticker. No, we are preaching Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords the one who was and is and is to come, the one who the angels and demons bow down in reverence. And yet the same Jesus who in scandal of all scandals took on flesh and moved into our depraved neighborhoods. That Jesus who went on our behalf was sentenced, suffered, and was smashed for our sins. That is called the scandal of grace. That is Jesus unfiltered. 
And that's who we're preaching this morning. John chapter 8, verse 1 to 12 will be on the screen behind me, but this is our text for today. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that as we gather, I get to pray a simple and yet profound prayer for us all. Where our hearts have become dry, where our hearts have grown dark, where our hearts have grown distant, I pray right now, would you flood them with your grace? And I thank you, Father God, where the scandal of our sin, shame, and Satan's oppression has come and overwhelmed us, I pray right now, would you overwhelm us, checkmate us, go all in on the scandal that is called grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to preach this together again, if you're right with that. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I know you all love. Why don't you turn to your neighbor? Look them in the eye and say, you're looking good today. For some of you, that is the truth. For others, it's a prophecy. Just declare it. Come on. I didn't say who. Let me give us some context to John chapter 8 this morning. This, this whole story takes on, is on the back end of something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a seven days and seven nights feast where the people of Israel move out of their homes for a week and, and they erect uh, temporary dwellings, booths, tents that they live in for that week to remind them of God's supernatural, scandalous provision for them when they were a people in the wilderness, where they lived in tents and booths for 40 years. And God continually, supernaturally, scandalously provided for them. So they, they do this for a whole week where they live this way. And there's actually two massive traditions that the priests carry out through this, this week that are, need to be, we need to understand for our context today. Is the priests every day, and part of the celebration, the part of this euphoria, this, this reminder of God's goodness to them as a people, the priests will go down to the pool of Siloam and they'll take out some water and they'll all go up with great rejoicing, with much fanfare into the temple. And they'll pour that out onto the altar, symbolizing when God scandalously provided water from a rock in the wilderness. When they were unable to feed themselves, unable to hydrate themselves in a harsh wilderness where they did not deserve God's kindness, God said, I will allow a man to speak to a rock and a rock to open up and a source of life to flow from it. 
So they do that in celebration. God, you've been good. And that's why in John chapter 7, it says on the last day of the feast, after seeing this happen again and again, Jesus stands up and says, I am the source of living water. It says anyone who comes to me will not thirst, but living, streams of living water will flow from them. In that moment, Jesus is saying, I see your tradition. I want to tell you, I am the fulfillment of it. The very, on the back end of this, in John, we find at John chapter 8, verse 12, we, we, we learn about another tradition that happens, is that the priests, what they will do during this time is they will light the start of the festival all the way to the end. They'll light four significant candles, four significant lamps that they place in the center of the, of, of the temple that they, go, they reach up 75 feet high. And they'll light them, and they say the light, the, the, the folklore of, of the Israel people, the Jewish people, is that for those seven days, that the, the, the light of the city is light lit up by those four candles. And they do that to remind their hearts of when God, in, in His divine kindness, His scandalous kindness, though they did not deserve it, in a wilderness they did not know of, led them with a fire by night. When they had no clue where to go, God put a fire in the sky supernaturally and says, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to lead you. And they light these candles to remind themselves that though of that light. And the Bible tells us it's the last day of the festival. And then the next day it says what would happen on that last night is that they'll ceremonially extinguish those candles. And, and you might not know how this feels, South Africa in the year 2021, but everything would go dark. You might not know or understand that reality. Hashtag ESCOM. But they'll do that, and they, can you imagine the pitch darkness, and all of a sudden that which was blazing now goes very dark. And it's on the backdrop of that, Jesus in John 8 verse 12 stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is not, he's not just dropping out bars everywhere. He's actually saying, I see your tradition, and I raise you that I am the fulfillment of it. I am the fulfillment of it. This is how this whole story is bookended. On this side, it's streams of living water. He said, on this side, I am the light of the world. And in the middle is a scandalous tale, a story of mess, a story of chaos. But the story begins by telling us that this happened at the end of the festival, the seven-day festival. It says this was the eighth day, the Sabbath day. And the Bible tells us in Jewish tradition that the eighth day is a day of new beginnings. When all else has been completed, when all else has been said finished, the eighth day is a day of new beginnings. And I love the fact that the biblical author John is telling us that this event happens on the eighth day. On a day when everyone else is written off, on a day when everyone else says, the festival's done, we're packing up the booths, it feels like December 26th, you've all built up to this crescendo, but now the festival's done, the lights are extinguished, it's time to go home, it's a feel bit anticlimactic, they're putting it all away, but Jesus says, when everything else is said and done, I'm just beginning my work. I'm a God of new beginnings. And this is an incredible story as the this, this story starts to take shape. And I picture it in an environment. This is my environment here. So I picture it as a church service. Jesus is up. The scriptures tell us he's teaching. People are taking notes. People amening at the back. People are saying, good word, preacher. Loving it, Jesus. Tweeting, Jesus really getting into his stride today. Wow, I love this word. And the, but there's a people with rapt attention on Jesus. But then all of a sudden, the doors at the back are flung open. 
there's chaos. Every head in the room turns away from Jesus, woof, looks at the back. Because there's a whole bunch of religious elite Pharisees who are dragging in a woman who is half naked, a woman who is screaming, a woman who's digging her heels and pleading, begging, playing, please, 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 give me another chance, please. But they are fuming at the nostril. Their eyes are, are like flint because they know they've caught her. They've got the scandal and they know they want to bring it into full display. And they drag this woman in and there's an airy silence. And the only thing that's piercing the silence are the sobs and shrieks of this woman thrown at the feet of Jesus. We've caught her. Caught out. We've got her. In this moment, I want to ask, and this is my deep biblical exposition of the text. How do men catch other people in the act of adultery? You flipping, peeping toms. You can write that one in your notebooks. Just that one for free. But I want to tell you that this moment, they expose her and they drag her to the feet of Jesus. And I can almost smell the fear in this woman as her body is shaking on the ground. Her head now, she, the embarrassment. You can smell the humiliation. You can smell the sex from the night before. The illicit relationship is now being exposed for all to see. And she's just sobbing, sobbing into the dust as men parade around her, looking at her, poking her, saying, ah, what's going to happen in this moment? They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, the law says, according to Moses, we get to stone her. And they were partially right because the law says, yes, you do if they've been caught in an act of adultery. But the, but the full extent of the story is she should have had the person that she was committing the act of adultery with with her. Where did that guy go? Scarp it out the back window. But you see, they didn't even go for the full extent of the law because actually she wasn't their full objective of trial. They were wanting to expose Jesus. In this moment, they're actually saying it's not about her. She's just a pawn in our play. We want to get to him. Why? Because they wanted to test Jesus in this moment. They want to catch him out. They wanted to eat chavang Jesus. They want to, hey, we got Jesus. Because they wanted to trap Jesus between morality and mercy. Because in this moment, they thought if Jesus is, holds on to morality and says, yeah, you're right. I'm gonna, I am going to hold on to the law because that is what the law says. Sure, you can stone her. In that moment, he would have lost all his followers, his, his disenfranchised followers who thought he was the most incredibly kind and merciful and whose burden was easy and yoke was light. He would have lost all of them because he was the heart just like the rest of them. But also if he had said, no, 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 guys, let's try a different angle. In that moment, they would have discredited him and said, look, false teacher. He doesn't hold up to the law. He's just a myth teller. And they would have discredited his ministry, caught between morality and mercy. But you see, this is an incredible story because when I read the story, I, I read it and it's entitled Woman Caught in Adultery. But as the more and more I read it, I realize that this story has been mistitled. Because actually, the camera wasn't on that woman. The camera, Jesus then turns it and spins it on those men. It should have been called Men Caught in Hypocrisy. And then that mo when I read that and understand it, I realize that the enemy loves to do, the enemy loves to take a moment and make it your headline. The enemy loves to take that one moment, that one night, that one mistake and say, that will be the defining feature of your life. That car crash, that moment, that divorce, that relationship, that, that lie, that fraud, that thing will color and determine the course of your life. That's the headline. But I want to tell you again that Jesus is all about rewriting headlines. He is the expert with the typics. Divine typics. You see, all the way through the pages of Scripture, we see a man, the enemy says, Abraham, old and infertile. And God goes, oh, 
Give me that story. Backspace, backspace, backspace. Father of our faith. And we go, oh, all right, fine, fine, fine. David, adulterer, murderous man. Man after my own heart. Boom. Okay, fine, let's go New Testament. Saul, persecutor, murderer of Christians. What are you going to do now, Jesus? Oh, good one. Backspace, 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 backspace. I'm going to rename him Paul, and he's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament, and he'll be the chief of the apostles. Headline change. This is what our Savior does. This is what he does again and again and again and again. I want to tell maybe one person here, maybe one person in the balcony, it is not too late for your headline to change. It is not too late for your headline to change. You see, in this moment, I love the reality that we get to almost a line in the sands moment, metaphorically and physically speaking. In this moment, with the accusations flying, Jesus settles down and he starts to write in the sand. You see, in this moment, what's so huge, the law actually forbids any writing of any kind on the Sabbath. You're not even allowed to write two letters on the Sabbath. The oral tradition that they added in to give them the legalists a way out of that, because you've got to write the shopping list down, was you could write in the dust. So Jesus, in a moment... In that moment there, when they're throwing the law in his face, he's almost going, guys, boys, 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 I know your law. I even know the law that you've added to your laws. Check this out. Starts writing in the dust. Like, oh, what's going on here? Why is he not speaking? Why is Jesus not saying anything? I love this reality that this, this true story is that it's almost in, in that moment, I, I would, if I was Jesus, I, I would almost be like, okay, the scene happens, people throwing at my feet. And, and are you all looking at me going, Gabe, what are you going to say? Gabe, what are you going to say? I'm like, um, just, just what, what scripture are you quoting? Le Leviticus. Okay, my Bible's upside down. So give, just give me a moment, guys. Leviticus 23, you say. What, what translation, guys? Um, I need to know your translation you're working from. Which, 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 um, which rendering, which, yeah, which, which part of the oral tradition? I would be nervous and stressful and anxious and, and worked up about trying to, I've got to stand up for this woman. How am I going to defend myself? But can I tell you, in the presence of sin, Jesus is not nervous. He's not anxious. He's not out of control. He stoops down. He starts to doodle in the sand. Now, when I see that, I realize that the whole book of John, his whole purpose was not just a retelling of events. He is actually saying, I'm showing you how Jesus is the, the recreation of it all. That Jesus is rewriting all of his creations and all of eternity headlines. That actually says, that's why he says in the beginning in John 1. Because he's saying, this is um, what you have put, the filters you put on God, that you put in the place in Genesis, that, and you've now made him distant and angry and aloof. He's saying, no, Jesus come to remove those filters to show him what he's really like. So when Jesus bends down and starts writing in the dust, my mind goes to Genesis chapter 2, where the first face of God for humanity was not a God angry and aloof and with arms folded saying, okay, let me give you your mandates. No, but of a God who is on his knees in the dust of the earth, breathing life into lifeless Adam, writing in the dust. The word who was in the beginning now stands before a woman and he's rewriting her story. Potentially, Exodus chapter 31 tells us about this. It says, when Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai with the tablets of the commandments, it says this, when the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. The finger that's writing in the dust was the finger that wrote the law. 
that wrote the law. This is the God that we serve, and he's standing there in the presence of exposing, of scandal, of debauchery, of hypocrisy, and he's not stressed. He's writing. Or maybe Jeremiah 17 verse 13 says this, those who turn away, or as others' translation says, those whose deeds are exposed as corrupt, from you they will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. What, what was he writing in the dust that day? Scholars are up a debate, and maybe he wrote this, and maybe that divine noughts and crosses. I don't think so. <laughs> Potentially, one theory or idea was maybe he was writing down the accusers' names and writing some details that he, they would not want made public. Pharisee Bob. It's Bob. And he just wrote a phone number. And Bob goes, what the hell? Bob's like, uh... I've got the, I left the stew on at home. Just moves away from the crowd. And then Jesus moves on. Pharisee George. And he doesn't even have to write George's name. He just writes that woman that George has been having a little bit too intense counseling sessions with. You know? George goes, oh. oh, my phone's ringing. George, there's no sound. It's ringing. It's on silent. I don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand there, but, but the, the reaction to it caused a stir. Writing in the sand. But actually, he was leading them to a moment where he stood up, and Jesus in this moment says something so genius, so profound. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Genius. The camera was on the woman. The camera then was turned on to Jesus, and Jesus in one moment goes, yeah, 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 change the, change the selfie mode. Bah, it's back on you boys. <laughs> oh, if you've ever done that before, you've turned it and you didn't mean to, whoa, my nostrils are big. But it's quite exposing. Stop looking at my nostrils now, everyone, please. But in that moment, in that moment, Jesus is saying, you are all frauds. You are all scandal ridden. In that moment, Jesus turns the finger of God upon them in a divine moment. And as we're so good, and I want to tell you before we go, ah, oh, the Pharisees. Can I tell you something? Pharisees! Pharisees! Pharisee! This is so huge because we, we live in this world where we define our morality by, based on my sin is not as bad as your sin. I would never cheat on my wife except when I cheat on her by not keeping the promises I made to her in our vows. When I cheat her of the love that she deserves, I cheat her of the time that I promised, the cheater of the, the, the vows I said I'll do the X, Y, Z. But, but, no, but that's not really cheating. I'll Adultery, I would never commit adultery. <laughs> well, Jesus said, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, if you've uh, slowly you stopped and you scrolled a little bit slower over that certain Instagram picture, you sent way one too many, way too many emojis and flirty emoticons to that guy at work that you know you shouldn't have. The Bible says those acts committed adultery in your heart already. Pharisee, camera back on you. And I love this reality that whatever he wrote in that moment on the back of that statement, the Bible says they all dropped their stones and walked away. The accusers were gone. And we left with this incredible line where it says, as Jesus stood up again and the crowd surrounded, but all the accusers left, it says there only remained Jesus and the woman. Wow. Jesus says, he asked you this question, says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? To which he replies, Lord, no, not one. And then Jesus says a line 
that is the most scandalous line in the Bible. Neither do I condemn you. The only one who had the full authority and power and legitimate ability to condemn her because she had transgressed, she had messed up, she had overstepped the mark, and the only one who was able to come down, the one who wrote the law, the one who was there at the beginning, the one who would be there at the end, the only one who would be able to say, you are a fraud, in that moment scandalously says, then neither do I condemn you. What is going on? I want to tell you this today, that the law comes to expose you, but the person of grace comes to clothe you. The law comes to expose you. Grace comes to clothe you. It's all over the scriptures. Jesus tells a parable that riled up the religious elite, that, that really got his finger in their nostrils. In Luke chapter 15, he tells a, a parable of a son that went to a far country, a distant land. That is biblical euphemism saying that he went to the furthest extent of his sin. He went to the furthest extent of his depravity. He went to the furthest ability to go where there was no way back for any Jewish kid. He went to a far place. And in that reality, as he starts to wander his way home, we find in the Bible this incredible line that says, the father saw him from a distance and ran to him. The only time in scripture God runs is to a sinner coming home. It's never with a condemning finger. He does not run to bring rebuke. He runs to a sinner coming home. And what does he do? He meets this boy, not, he doesn't expose him, who has all the legitimate reasons to be exposed, but he clothes him with a robe of righteousness. He clothes him with a ring of authority. He clothes him with shoes of fitting of the sonship as reality, saying, welcome home, my boy. The law exposes, but grace clothes. You see, earthly scandal, the best it can do says, I'll, I'll give you another chance. Heavenly scandal says, I'll give you a new life. Come to me, I'll give you a new life. You see, this is what the enemy does. The enemy plays this game. It'll, it'll meet you at the door again and again. It'll meet you every morning as you wake up from that stupor. It'll meet you at the wee hours of the night when you log off and delete that history. It'll meet you in that moment when, you, when you're involved in that activity and you, you're wishing nobody had seen, you're wishing nobody had thought, nobody knew that when you're lying in bed and you have that, that attitude in your heart, you, can, you cannot get it out. The enemy will meet you and say, where have you been? What have you done? You're smelling of smoke again, boy. <laughs> You're smelling of sex again. Oh, is that alcohol in your breath? Oh, you've been hanging out with those people again, haven't you? <laughs> That's how the enemy meets us. But I want to tell you today that Jesus was never taken by surprise by your sin. Rewind all the way to Genesis. This is not how Genesis plays out. Genesis does not play out like this. God creates the earth in seven days. <laughs> Creation. It's magnificent. Angels are applauding, going, this is remarkable. Incredible work, God. Take a day off. Oh, I think I will. I deserve it. Takes a day off. But the next day, the Holy Spirit comes in and goes, oh, God, um, I don't think you should have rested yesterday. Something happened. What happened? Oh, Adam and Eve, I, I looked away for a second. And I did, I, before I could even, I couldn't say anything. They were doing it. They were talking to that snake. You know, oh, the snake was there having his words, the snake convinced them, they took the fruits, now they're naked, now they're ashamed, they're hiding, ah, I'm so sorry, I don't know what happened, ah, God's like, oh my gosh, okay, Jesus, Holy Spirit, boardroom in 10, we need a plan, um, I don't, come on, okay, come on guys, whiteboard's out, no idea's a bad idea, I want us to write out here, come on, Holy Spirit, you're the creative one, give us a good start, uh, 
Holy Spirit under pressure. A flood. Let's bring a flood. Start again. All right. No ideas about it. All right. Give it a go. Flood. We'll send prophets and, and, and judges. They, they'll, yeah, they'll get them straightened out. Ah. 400 years of silence. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. That'll teach them. Then the father goes quiet for a while. They go, um, Jesus, you're not going to like this idea. Just stick with me. There's a teenage girl. I want you to become a baby. He's like, what? <laughs> That's not how it played out. Let me tell you what Scripture categorically tells in the book of 1 Peter. says this, that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was slain before the creation of the world. Before your sin, before your failure, before your shame, before you messed up, God had already made provision for it. Jesus was not in reaction to, it was always in the heart of God to lift up Jesus so all men would be drawn unto him. Jesus would always be the means of salvation. There is no other way. It is not a new way. It has always been the one way to the Father through Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is that when Satan comes to you and says, Gabe, I know what you did over here. I want to remind you of your past. I say, I see, I see my past, but enemy, you've got to keep going further back. You've got to keep going further back because actually the grace of God did not only kick in when I repented. The grace of, grace of God started way before you even arrived on the scene. The grace of God was not determined by you. The enemy was determined by the Father. This is the good news, people. And I love the fact that when I thought I was far gone, I thought I'd gone to the furthest extent of my ability, I found that his grace went further still. His grace never stopped pursuing, stopped running, stopped coming after me. And you realize this, that actually when we read this text, we find that Jesus is not weak on sin. He's strong on grace. You see, the gospel does not come and cheapen our sin. It eradicates it. He says, I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. And every pharisaical bone in my body goes, but there must be some punishment. And Jesus says, oh, there will be. And my son on the cross, the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the gospel is this. You see, Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can you imagine that moment? A woman who came shivering in fear and humiliation and degradation, lying there, clothes tattered, being pulled out of an illicit lover's bed at the exposure of, of the elements of all of humanity, gazing on her with condemnation, knowing she deserves death. Knowing what the law says, she knew what was happening. She knew the next thing is rocks are going to come down and pound my skull in. I am done. But fast forward a few moments, there's a woman walking out of there into the sunlight. Bizarre. What just happened there? I'm telling you, that moment, she's not walking back to the guy who leapt out of the bed and ran away, didn't defend her. She's not walking back to the illicit love affairs and the illicit ways of life. She's going home, and as the door opens at home, and her kids say, Mom! A new mom has come home, one who was dead but now is alive. You see, and I love, what I love about this text is if you read it at home, John chapter 8 has a little asterisk above it. There's little asterisks, and if you go read at the bottom, John chapter 8 verse 1 to 11, at the bottom it says, this text is highly disputed that actually, because early manuscripts didn't even include it. 
because they have debated about it and wrangled with it. And the biblical people who put, put the Bible together and pieced it all with the different early manuscripts said they didn't like this text, but the chief reason was it really did not sit well with them. They thought Jesus appears cheap on sin. I want to exclude that one. I want to exclude that story. It's too scandalous. I want to exclude that sin. It's too scandalous. They all want. Let me tell you today that I believe the enemy wanted to exclude you. He wanted to cheapen you. He wanted to cancel you, delete you. He wanted to bury you in the scandal of your addiction. He wanted to bury you in the scandal of your divorce, the scandal of your pill popping, the scandal of your money laundering, the scandal of your tax evading, the scandal of your uncontrolled temper and violence, the scandal of your hypocrisy. But in that one moment, one foul swoop, Jesus said, I see your scandal, but I want to raise you the scandal called grace. A scandal called grace. What you wish could be excluded, hidden, erased. God says, I will use for my grace. Your darkest day, your most depraved day, your most defeated day in my hands will be called a scandalous day when my grace kicked in. My grace kicks in when you're at your lowest. My grace kicks in when you're at your least. My grace kicks in when you're the most lost you've ever been. That's when my grace kicks in. I tell you today, I believe that Jesus wants to fill the city with the scandalous grace of Jesus. My name is Gabe Phillips, and I tell you, I'm a scandal. I was a porn addict for the majority of my teenage years. And now my friends come and see me, friends who knew me then, they ask me this, you do what? No, no, Gabe. And I'm like, I'm a scandal of grace. I'm a scandal called Gabe. Scandal called Jacques and Louise. A scandal named Quinton Hawes. A scandal named Wayne Barthas. A scandal named Tobias. A scandal named Toko. A scandal named Grant. There's scandals that Jesus is releasing into this world to be a display of his extravagant event. His scandalous, his dangerous grace. That's what he's releasing into this world. Can I tell you, she thought she was canceled, that woman. But then Jesus stood up. He said, I haven't finished speaking yet. She thought she was buried. But Jesus stood up. She thought she was defeated and finished, but Jesus stood up. Jesus is standing up today, and he stands up next to you, and it's not with an angry face. It's not a finger condemning you. It's a voice saying, and neither do I condemn you. Now, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. And how do I know this for sure? As I just look at Jesus on the cross. The only one who can take a day as scandalous as crucifixion, the humanity crucifying their own Savior and turn it to a day called Good Friday. A day where Jesus picked up that cross and walked up determinedly up the hill of Golgotha and it was a line in the sand moment and he said this, this far no further accuser as he slammed that cross into a hill and he silenced once and for all that barking dog, that bony fingered pointing your chest dog called the accuser of the brethren and he was silenced forever and said this headline has been rewritten. This day has been rewritten. This moment has been rewritten because I've come and I was buried but now I'm alive. I'm alive and I stand enthroned upon the praises of my people. I tell you today, as we all stand to our feet, please, is that Jesus silenced the accuser, not by our promises, not by our pledges, not by our obedience, but by the blood of Jesus alone. And the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus writes a better word. The blood of Jesus doesn't expose you, it clothes you. This is what my confidence is. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood 
and righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I land with a quick story. Years ago when my little girl was born, I remember the first time when we ran that bath, we came home from the hospital and she was dressed wrapped warmly in a onesie. And I was nervously trying to do all things, make sure everything was right. We ran that bath and this little girl was cooing and looking very cute and we thought, this is amazing. And as the, the, the harsh Cape Town breeze came in and as we started to unzip the onesie and remove the vest and suddenly this little body was, this pale body was exposed to the elements. And she started to shiver and she started to look around and said, no, no, we've got to take you to a bath. And it's almost like her eyes saying, bath? I didn't sign up for that. What is this bath you talk about? But I took this little girl and naked and exposed and I started to lower her into the bath to get cleansed. And as I lowered her into the bath, her eyes got wide and she thought, this is, this is my end. This is premature. What's going on here? And as I started going down, I'll remember it so distinctively forever. Her little hand instinctively held onto my wrist, squeezing, squeezing onto my wrist. Thinking, I've got to hold on for dear life here. This guy's taking me under. I've got to hold on. But as I saw that, that little grip, that tiny grip, that feeble grip, I realized that she, in her head, she thought that was holding her above the water, holding her above certain doom. But actually, she didn't know that there was hands that had never left her. There was hands of her dad who would never, never betray her. Hands that had formed her, hands now are holding her. Hands are lowering and not to expose her and not to expose her, but to clothe her, to cleanse her. And that is what the blood of Jesus does. The law comes, exposes us. In this moment, we don't run to the law. We run to the only one who can clothe us. The only blood that comes and find his hands have never left us. His hands have never betrayed us. When we went further still, when we were at our darkest, he said, I was there with you. My grace went with you. My grace went before you. My grace goes after you. My grace never leaves you. This is the scandal. It's too good to be true. It's the scandal of grace. And it's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus alone. It's because of Jesus alone. Can we lift our hands in this moment?